0: Good morning i think that if pharaoh was unable to hear the word of god after so many plagues how much more so do we need to ask god to enable us to hear this morning so let's go to god right now and pray and ask him to make this passage alive to us that we might not respond like pharaoh let's pray Heavenly Father, we praise you for being God Almighty, truly the creator of all that is seen and unseen, our heavenly God, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. We confess our rebellion to you this morning, Lord, even as those saved by grace, we recognize that our hearts oftentimes are more like Pharaoh than not. They are hard to your word. We hear Scripture preached, we hear it taught, we read it with our own eyes, and yet how often, Father, do we not do what it says to do. We thank you for being a God who knows our plight and sent the Son that we might be redeemed from our own rebellion. We ask, Lord, that you be gracious with all of us this morning and apply his righteousness to us so that we might be holy as you are holy And then live as a holy people. We praise you, Lord, for the proclamation of this great gospel that came to our ears. We praise you for the proclamation that we made this morning here in this church by your grace and all true churches here in the South Bay and throughout the world. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to proclaim it to others that they too might hear, repent, believe, and be saved. Give us the desire, Lord to truly hear the warning set forth. Enable us to see that our hearts are truly sinful apart from Christ and we so desperately need the grace this morning. We ask that you would show us the hope of the gospel, that we might know it and enjoy it and then share it with others, that we might find hope in the power of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of the church today. We do pray, Lord, for all your true churches here in the South Bay this morning as our brothers and sisters have gathered in like-minded churches to worship you. We pray specifically for Evergreen Community. We ask, Lord, that you would bless Pastor Joshua this morning as he faithfully proclaims the gospel from the Word. We pray that you would bless their elders and their deacons. Bless that church body, Lord, with a deep desire to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ to impact their community, to testify to their family and friends. Bless them, I pray, with your Holy Spirit, and do the same here this morning. Lord, bless us with your Spirit. We are no different than Pharaoh. We cannot worship you apart from your Spirit. So have your Spirit dwell here mightily this morning. Give us ears that are attuned to you. Give us eyes to see you clearly, and then align our lives with the gospel. We want to walk that narrow line well, Lord with whatever time you give us, that we might glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's holy name, amen, amen, amen. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. Um, If you have a Bible, please open up to Exodus 9 and 10 if you're not there already. And if you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, uh, raise your hand and we'll have one of our ushers bring a Bible to you. And if you'd like to keep it, you may. It is a gift from us. By all means, take it and then... Read it as much as you can and as long as you would like. We have a few coming from the back. Thank you. So just raise your hand if you'd like one. I got one more here. One more here, John. Thank you. Very good. So open up if you would. Exodus chapter 9. We are making our way through this extraordinary tale, and it is a real tale. It is history. And I hope that when you heard Kirk reading it, there was a sense of excitement, a sense of fear, a sense of joy, and a great interest, because this story is for you. It was for Pharaoh, certainly for the Egyptians and the Israelites in that time, but we're going to see from Exodus 10 today that this story and all these great movements were for you to hear. And so we will, we will look at that by God's grace and be rightly moved by it. Um, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. You go all the way there in the book, in the New Testament, it's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation depicts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming again in glory to judge and to save. We're told in Revelation chapter 16, verse 21, that after the seventh angel poured out the seventh bowl, this is what happened. Listen. Revelation 16, 21, great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. A little bit earlier in Revelation chapter 9, verse 3, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and were told that locusts came upon the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions. I think Peter does a great job summing up this end time judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, when he said, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth. And everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything that we see and that we know. All that you own, all that you worked for, all that you want. Your cars, your clothes, your homes, your bank accounts. In the end, one day, it will all be decimated by God in the great day of judgment. The Egyptians, like us, were a very materialistic people. They looked for their sustenance and their comfort and their security in their things. Their things were a little different than ours. They looked for it in their land and their crops and their animals. It was an agrarian culture, and that's where they found their wealth. We look for it in things like our homes, our savings accounts, and our 401Ks. So attached were they to their things that most of you probably know this, they would actually be buried with them. In many of the tombs, the pharaohs, they have discovered many riches that they might take these things with them into the afterlife. And they attached idols to them. We've looked at some of those idols already, but they worshipped the material possessions. They were materialistic in their worship. Not Yahweh, not the true God, but the things that they had. Now, the problem with all materialistic cultures, just like ours, is there's no hope of salvation. Materialism is a worldview that places the emphasis and hope in the physical things rather than the creator of those physical things. And therefore, there's no hope of sustenance, and there's no hope of salvation in the material things. I don't think any of you right now would consciously say, no, no, my hope is in my home, or my hope is in my job. You wouldn't be so foolish, and yet each day we live as though it is. All our energy and our anxiety and thoughts go to these material things. In the the first few chapters of Exodus, we've seen thus far that God has gone to great lengths, sending plague upon plague upon Pharaoh and Egypt, that they might see that there is hope Not in their land, not in their agriculture, not in their animals, but there's hope in him. And so he's been making himself Yahweh known as the one who can sustain and the one who can save. And so he sent these cycles of plagues. We've seen two already. Remember the first cycle, we had the blood and we had the frogs and we had the gnats. Then the second cycle, we saw the flies, the biting flies, the livestock plague. And then we had those beautiful boils that came upon man and beast God, in all of these, continuously revealing Himself as what? As judge and as Savior. As the one who, as a just God, would judge the sins of men, and as a gracious Savior would redeem all those who would repent and believe. So we've made it to this last cycle, plague 7, 8, and 9. We're going to look at 7 and 8 today. We're going to look at the Plague of the Hail and the Plague of the Locust before we get to the darkness next week. And then the final plague, the tenth plague, where the angel of death comes. And in, in plague 7 and 8, you probably noticed this from the reading, God goes after the true idol. He goes after their pocketbook. He's going to say, I'm going to go after the things that you possess, that you actually and literally bow down and worship to. I'm going to go after your land. I'm going to go after your livestock. I'm going to go after your homes and your 401ks. And he does this by sending the two most destructive plagues yet, hail and locusts. Now, I I pray this morning as a materialistic culture, and I don't think I need to even emphasize that too much. We all know that we're steeped in it, that we would would heed the warning that this passage brings before the revelatory hail of Revelation 16 or the revelatory locust of Revelation 9 come upon us. It hasn't happened yet, so there's still hope to hear and be saved. Amen? All right. So it is my prayer this morning that we will heed the warning, that we will turn from our sins, that we will seek refuge in God, because that's what He so desires for us. And then we can live in the midst of the materialism, but not be swallowed up by it, so that our God is the real God, the true living God of the Bible. And I want to do that by looking at four things this morning. One, everyone's proclamation. Everyone has the same proclamation. One, everyone's, number two, everyone's warning. Number three, everyone's hope. And number four, everyone's prayer. The proclamation, the warning, the hope, and the prayer that come from these two passages. Now, given the length of these verses, I cannot get through each of them exegetically, verse by verse. And so I'm hoping to bring out that which stood out to me. There are many others, obviously, that you can go back and and hear God speak to you in your relational reading, but this is what was revealed to me. So number one, I I hope that you're listening. Um, I hope that you know this story is for you, so listen with all your might. Everyone's proclamation, look at verse 13, chapter 9. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. You probably noticed that God's patience is beginning to wear thin here. This is plague number seven. Seven times the commandment has gone out. Seven times the six plagues now have been rejected by Pharaoh. He has not listened. He will not let God's people go. And so God says, look at verse 14, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And all your servants and all your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And this phrase here when it says all my plagues, it's the only time it's used in Exodus. And it literally means a severe blow or a slaughter. In other words, these next four plagues, the hail, the locust, the darkness, and the angel of death, it's going to bring Egypt and Pharaoh to their knees. That they will finally do what? Let God's people go. The command has been given over and over and over and over. Pharaoh has said, no, I will not. Look at verse 15. For by now, God said, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And there was no need for the creator of the universe to go tit for tat with Pharaoh. But look at verse 16. He has a purpose. God always does everything with a purpose. He said, but for this purpose... I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, he's moved through these plague cycles not only to show Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites that he is the God of all the earth, but listen, this is extraordinary to me, how much God loved you in advance of saving you in Christ. It is for you. The plagues were for you. The plagues were for me. The plagues are for our children and our grandchildren that we might know that there is none like Yahweh in all the earth before today and forevermore. It was a call. These plagues were a call to the whole world. He's saying, do you see me? It was a revelation to the entire world that the world might know that there is one God, one judge, and one Savior, and that is Yahweh. That's Yahweh. In other words, the the plagues were given to be part of our story, part of the story of human history. that They might be told and retold. They are big. They are supernatural. I would argue they are in and of themselves quite entertaining, especially from afar as we sit and we listen. They are told and retold that His name, Yahweh, the great I Am, look at verse 16, will be proclaimed in all the earth by friend and foe. The Egyptians, no doubt, talked about these plagues for decades, if not centuries. Pharaoh and the servants and the Egyptians could testify to the power and wrath of God. God's name would be known. And certainly by his people. I often thought, what did they think as they sat in Goshen and saw these plagues decimate their enemies, decimate, and, and they remain safe? What a testimony. Such a powerful testimony that we know from the book of Psalms that it was written about again and again and again. Psalm 44, verse 1, to give you a taste. These are songs now. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old, proclaiming again and again, generation after generation, of this great God. You remember the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. God said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. How so? That he blessed through Jesus Christ in coming to know this God by name. Not just know of him as Pharaoh did, but to know him by name in an intimate, loving relationship through the cross of Christ made available to us through the proclamation of the gospel of grace. A gospel that we have heard and by grace repented and believed. A gospel that we are called to share with our friends and our family. A gospel that we are to proclaim regularly to one another. Yes, within the church we are commanded to share and proclaim and teach the gospel to one another. Lest our hearts grow hard like Pharaoh. And of course we are to proclaim it to our children and our grandchildren. Look at chapter 10. In the plague of the locusts, the next plague that comes... Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. We get this constant theme of God making himself known. Generation after generation, that's always been the plan. Now, knowledge of God is the first step of salvation. It is necessary to know that there is one true living God. It's necessary to know that he is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. It's necessary to know that he is holy and that we are not, and that his holiness is The perfection of righteousness is based upon his character, and when we look at God, we realize that we are unholy through and through, just as we had a chance to sing. When you stand before this God, you realize you need a Savior, and if you have an ear to hear, you know that he sent that Savior, and that is Christ, that Jesus came to die to make you alive. But the knowledge of this is not sufficient. It certainly was not for Pharaoh. I would argue Pharaoh had more experiential revelation of the power and majesty of God than we ever will. He saw it with his eyes, and yet he did not believe. The Holy Spirit must come, and it must take the knowledge of this truth and the gospel of grace and apply it to your hearts and minds so that you too can repent and believe and be saved. And that's why there's a command here in chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that we, as a people, for generation after generation, will tell our children and tell our grandchildren. Most of you know that I'm a relatively new grandfather, and I cannot wait to teach Abby these truths. I cannot wait to tell her the story of how God came to Pharaoh to make himself known, and the majesty and power of Pharaoh... And how he poured out his curses upon this man and he would do the same later on Christ that Abby might be saved. To our children and our grandchildren, we are commanded to teach them the way of the faith. We're to bring to them the Bible. We're to pray with them regularly. We're to bring them into a body of believers. They might know the community of the saints. And we must pray. If we believe that it's more than knowledge and that the Holy Spirit must do work, then we must pray fervently. Parents and grandparents, if you are not fervently praying for the souls of your children and grandchildren, I would argue you don't love them that much. You may say you do, but their soul is what matters for eternity. And by God's grace, we will be a praying people for our children, our grandchildren, and our great grandchildren, whom most of us will never meet. I'm afraid, my beloved, that in our materialistic culture, That we're more concerned about what our children wear, the sports they play, and where they go to school than their precious eternal souls. I mean, most recently, we saw parents, high-profile parents, with deep pocketbooks spending tens of thousands of dollars to cheat, to get their children into some of the top schools in the country, so they can what? Have the prestigious degree, get the best jobs, live in those neighborhoods and drive those cars, all things, my beloved, that will be destroyed by the hail and the locusts and the fire to come, but the soul will live on in one of two states. And at what expense did these parents go to to bring their children up into this upper echelon of society? Did Jesus not say, what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He did And that's why the church must proclaim with our mouths and our lives the hope of Christ, the one who forfeited his soul so that we might have life instead of death, so that we might have heaven instead of the car and the house here on earth. We must be proclaiming this glorious hope to anyone and everyone who is willing to listen. But before you can talk about the hope of Christ, you have to bring a proper warning. I heard a partial gospel until I hit 21. People talked to me about how Christ loved me and how Christ wanted to save me, but I never understood the depth of my own sin. And so that offer was irrelevant to me. I actually thought it was foolish. Point number two, everyone's warning. Look at verse 18 in Exodus chapter 9. Everyone's warning. Verse 18, Exodus 9, behold, about this time, Pharaoh, I mean, Moses is now speaking to Pharaoh. I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Verse 19, now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Now in Revelation 16, we're told that that final judgment hail was about 100 pounds. We have no idea how much it was here, but it was sufficient to kill man and beast. And Egypt was not, uh, hail was not something foreign to the country, so they understood it. But this was going to be, look, very heavy, so it was unusual. It was going to take place tomorrow, so it was foretold, and it would be like from the day of Egypt was founded never before. 3400 B.C., this was going to be an extraordinary event. Predetermined, incomparable, incomparable extraordinary hail was about to come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. A storm only a most powerful, incomparable, extraordinary living God could produce. What I found so extraordinary about this is that God actually warns them. You know, this is the first plague that God says, oh, by the way, this is coming. You should do something about it. He does that because this is the first plague of death, right? All the plagues up to this point in time, they were hard. They were a nuisance I mean, when I talked about the frogs or I talked about the biting flies or the boils in the skin, but this one was going to be a death plague, not the final one we see in, chapter, in the 10th in the, um, the plague. But look at verse 19. Send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. In the summer months, the animals were brought in and put under shelter to protect them from the Egyptian sun. But from January to April, they would be allowed, the livestock would be allowed to spend time in the field. Most place the plagues during this time culminating, of course, with Passover and what we now celebrate Easter with the 10th plague in April. Because it was going to bring death, God gives a merciful warning in the midst of judgment. And he actually commands Pharaoh through Moses to send a message to the servants to get out of the field. Get your animals, get your servants, get your slaves, and get under shelter because this hail is going to be a deathly hail. Look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So God, showing mercy in the midst of judgment, and all those who feared him and feared his word and listened, they were redeemed. But all those who in their pride ignored the word of God, they perished. You could almost hear them saying, Could you not? We've seen lots of hailstorms. This is Egypt, it's not uncommon. Certainly it won't last that long and it can't be that deadly. We'll take our chances. They stayed in the field and their pride brought death instead of shelter and life. It is the disposition, I do believe, of the human heart apart from Christ to hear God's word and not take shelter. We do not take shelter in the son that he sent. How many times, my beloved, how many times did you hear the gospel of grace? Did someone come to you and say, God is holy, you're a sinner, repent and believe and be saved, or you will perish. And you said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another time, maybe. How many times have you shared that exact same gospel with friends or family members? And they've heard you, and you've called them to repentance before it's too late to come in, to seek shelter in Christ, to not be devoured by the wrath to come. And you've heard them say, I've got time, no big deal. I don't believe in a God like that. The God that I know is a God of love. He does not judge. He does not punish. Or they say, if there is a heaven, I'm sure I'll get in. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. These are prideful responses to the loving warnings that come straight from heaven. My beloved, they came to you. And if you know Christ, you listened and you repented and you believed. Pride is always the problem, is it not? Look at chapter 10 again. Look at verse 3. Locust plague. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? Let my people go, they may serve me. Verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left To you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. God asks Pharaoh the question he asked to all mankind How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That is the problem. We would say that's the consummate problem for all humanity. God is God, we are not. How long until we humble ourselves before the living God? How long, my beloved? How long will you listen to God's word and not take shelter in Christ? How long will you hear sermons taught or Sunday schools taught and not receive the saving grace of the blood of Jesus? He warns Pharaoh again and again, we're on round eight. And he says, Pharaoh, if you don't submit to my word, if you don't let the people go, the very little bit that's left after the hail, I'm going to send locusts and they're going to devour that too. I'm literally going to level your country. In other words, the locust would come and complete whatever the hail missed, literally leveling Egypt and bringing economic collapse to that almighty nation. God warned the people to not be prideful and take shelter. Some did, some did not. God warned them not to be prideful and spare themselves the locust plague. Pharaoh refused to listen. But as we all know, my beloved, the human heart is against hearing and obeying God's word. Apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, you will not and you cannot obey. Even if Christ were to appear today and walk into this sanctuary and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, apart from the Spirit, you would not hear. That was the message he brought when the God-man came to earth in the flesh. He said, repent, for the kingdom of Of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sins. Believe. Put your trust in my Father. Because judgment has come. Christ uttered it with his own lips. And yet the heart of man refused to believe. This is, listen, this is the hopeless state for man. Apart from God doing a mighty work to redeem us. In the midst of the plagues, they did not believe. In the midst of prophets coming directly to Pharaoh, Aaron, and Moses, they did not believe. In the midst of a world receiving the Son of God, God speaking in the flesh, we would not believe. In the midst of our prosperity and all the materialism that we enjoy, we still refuse to believe. For this is the state of man. We will not humble ourselves. We will not confess our sins. We will not follow this Christ. You say, well, what hope is there then? Shall we eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die and there is no hope. If that's the whole story, we're in trouble. If it's only the plagues and no salvation, then we're in trouble. I pray you're still with me. Do not stop now, or you're going to leave here depressed and discouraged. Point number three, everyone's hope. We've seen the proclamation. We've seen the warning and listen to the hope. Verse 23, chapter 9 verse 23 chapter 9 Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire literally lightning ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt there was hail and fire and flashing continually in the midst of the hail very heavy hail such as never had been in all the land of Egypt since it came became a nation verse 25 The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. The sight was catastrophic. I mean, we've had a chance in this last week to witness the multiple tornadoes that have touched down in the Midwest. And the the sight, it looks apocalyptic. Hundreds of these hailstorms happen throughout the world all the time. We're just not aware of it. In 1888, 240 people were killed and hundreds more injured in India when a hailstorm struck. In 1984, a hailstorm killed or injured over 400 people in Germany. And some of you probably remember this. In 2002, 22 22 people were killed and hundreds were injured in in the Henan province of China. What made this hailstorm unique In chapter 9, is that God said, I'm going to strike down every plant, every animal, and every man in the entire country who does not take shelter. And he did just that. God rained death down through hail. Even the description leaves no doubt that this was God's doing. Look at verse 24. It said, there was hail and fire flashing, continuing in the midst of the hail. Verse 23 says, there was thunder. That's a theophany. Remember, we got a chance to look at God in the burning bush. This is God in the storm, the lightning, the, the hail, the thunder. This is screaming God's presence, God's power, and of course, God's wrath. And so what little was left. Look at verse, verse 32 in chapter 9. The wheat and the emmer that were, were not struck down, for they were, are late in coming up. There was a little bit left. There was, there was a little bit of hope And God says, I'm going to finish that up with the locusts. The locusts was the second of a one-two punch by God. Look at verse 13 in chapter 10. Moses stretched out his staff over the land, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. Verse 15, they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Now when we think of locust, you must not think gnat or biting fly. When countries hear the locusts are coming, they think starvation. Because as we saw in Joel, when the locusts descend like this to cover the land, the land they eat everything. Not, even, not a green thing remained, verse 15, in the entire land. It was stripped bare. And so what little hope Pharaoh and his servants had after the hail, the little tiny bit of hope, God sent the locusts and he destroyed everything, laying the land bare. So much so, the servants had a little bit of sense. Look at chapter 10, verse 7, the latter part. They said, do you not yet understand that Egypt is, present tense, ruined? Eight plagues. Egypt is no more. All of Egypt lay in ruin except the land of Goshen. That had to have stood out for you as it was being read. All the plagues descending upon Egypt, these last two in particular, the hail and the locust, decimating the land except in Goshen. Look at chapter 9, verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Catastrophic, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were Was there no hail? Most of the commentators agree, same thing happened with the locusts. The locusts covered the land except for the land of Goshen. And so here we see God in most extraordinary fashion, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath, saving a people, protecting a people for his own glory. In other words, there was a safe haven and that was in Goshen where God's people were. God brought death through hail and the locusts, but he spared all those living in the land of Goshen. We looked at that last week. Goshen was in the northeastern part of Egypt where the Israelites had settled when Jacob came with his children to the land. It was the place where we're told in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, the Lord visited the people of Israel. It's a place where they bowed their heads and they worshiped Yahweh. So this was a community set apart to worship God, and God saves them from death. It was a foreshadowing of the 10th plague and the angel of death that would come in the Passover. Only in the land of Goshen, where God dwelt with his people, was there no hail, no locusts, no destruction, and no death. So if you are cognizant of the wrath that is upon us and the wrath that is to come, you should be asking, where's Goshen today? Shouldn't we all get on a bus and take a ride to wherever this place is? Because we want to be in that place where God will protect and provide for us, just like He did the Israelites in Goshen. When that Revelation 16 hail comes, when that trumpet is blown by that fifth angel in Revelation chapter 9, and the locusts come. I want, I want to be in Goshen, don't you? In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were, as you know, cast out of the garden. But they weren't just cast outside of the, the first Goshen, the first dwelling place with God. They were cast out of God's safe haven, and we're told in Genesis three twenty four that God placed at the east Of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, we were not only cast out, but we were prohibited from coming back in as sinners into the presence of a holy God. We were cast out from the dwelling place of God, the place where there is protection from the hail and the locusts. The place where there is provision from the starvation that comes upon those who do not know Christ. The place where we know the tree of life exists, that is eternal life. Our sin cast us out and there's a cherubim that stands with a sword turning every way to keep us from coming back in. We are prohibited as sinners from entering the eternal Goshen again. So again, You're saying, where's the hope in this, pastor? We're waiting for the hope. How do we get past the cherubim? How do we sinners get back into the presence of God where there's no hail, no locusts, and no darkness, and no death? Beginning with the temptation in the desert and then continuing all the way to the cross, Jesus did what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus did what you and I cannot do. He resisted the temptation to exalt himself pridefully. Even though he is God and deserved the exaltation, he resisted that. And instead, he freely chose to obey God, to humble himself. You know how far, even to the point of death on a cross, this Christ did for us. Through this obedience to death, Jesus was able to bear the suffering of the hail and the suffering of the locusts and the darkness we'll see next week and the death that is to come, the wrath that we rightly deserve, he took it in our place. He didn't deserve it himself. He was a sinless man, but he suffered it on behalf of those who did deserve it, and that is us. You see, the answer to getting back in, to getting past the cherubim and getting past the sword is Christ. On the cross, Jesus faced the flaming sword of God's eternal judgment that prevented sinful man from entering back into the eternal Goshen. Jesus walked through the flaming sword at the cost of his own life. And he did this so that all who repent and believe will cease the rebellion, will cease the pride, will hear and be humbled and confess their sins and be reconciled to the Father once again. He did this, my beloved, so that we could come back in. So the cherubim will put the sword down and he says, come back into Goshen. Come back into the garden, the presence of God where the Father dwells and we, his people, can be with him now and forever. And brought all the way in. Not on the outskirts of Goshen, but all the way in. So that you, my beloved, in Christ, if you've repented and put your faith in him, you will never, ever be subject to boils or frogs or blood or gnats. You'll never be subject ever again to hail or locusts or darkness or eternal death through this great work of the Savior. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God. I mean, that is the ultimate desire or should be for all Christians, to be with God. To be in his presence. So I pray you've seen the proclamation. You've seen the warning. You've heard the hope. I got one more. I pray you're still with me. Are you still with me? Come on. I haven't even gone gone that long yet. Have I? I don't know what time it is. Don't look at your watch. Here we go. Last one. Everyone's prayer. Everyone's prayer. How did did Pharaoh respond? I mean, the, the hail has come, the locust has come. Eight full plagues. The land is now decimated. The economy is destroyed. People have now died. Look at at verse 27, chapter 9. In the midst of the hail. So the hail is still coming down. Verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, Listen to this. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Verse 28, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, we read this. If you stop there, you would conclude that Pharaoh finally got it. It took him eight plagues. Circumstances, disaster, death, unprecedented. But he finally got it. He This is a sinner's prayer. He's crying out for mercy. Moses goes and he prays to God. God answers Moses' prayer. And then we're told in verse 34, chapter 9, look. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. No real change. Right prayer, no change of heart. But what about after the locust plague? I mean, that cry sounds even more sincere than the one after the plague of hail. Look at verse 16 in chapter 10. Certainly this is the right prayer. Maybe he just didn't get the prayer right the first time. Maybe he didn't word it right the first time. Verse 16, chapter 10, Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron. The locusts have covered the land, and he runs. So this this is an understanding. He's going after Moses and Aaron. He's got to talk to them right away. He says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Confession from Pharaoh to Moses and Aaron. I've sinned against you too. Verse 17, now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And you say, well, that that pastor, that has got to be a prayer of salvation. If that's not a prayer of salvation, I don't know what is. He's confessing his sins to God. He's confessing his sins against man. He's seeking to be set free from death. This is salvific in nature. And then you keep reading. Moses prayed again. God answered the prayer. Instead of an east wind, he brought a west wind. And with that west wind, he cast every single locust, every single one into the Red Sea to die. And then you get to verse 20, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Now, I don't need to tell you, if you're even a little bit older, that most people cry out to God in the midst of tragedy. Saved and unsaved. You heard the old adage, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. It's true. When hardship comes, when we struggle, when there's hail and locusts in our life, Saved or unsaved, we will cry out to God. God, help. God, save me. God, do something to take away this current plague. When our idols are not working, we turn to our friends and family, we turn to the medications, we go to the entertainment, and it's not working. It's not uncommon for mankind to turn to God and even admit guilt, maybe confess sin like Pharaoh, even seek forgiveness for his part in the sin. He says, I have sinned against you. My people have sinned against you. But this Pharaoh-like prayer is not salvific in nature. It has no power to redeem. Now some of you raised in the church, maybe you've heard the sinner's prayer. No such thing in the Bible, by the way. There's nothing you say to be redeemed. God redeems you and then you pray. Pharaoh was paying lip service to the living God. He had no change of heart. He just wanted relief from the circumstances. He wanted the death to stop, the hail to stop. He was not interested in worshiping God, and yet that's what it's all about. God created you to worship him. Jesus said, you will know them what? By their fruit. Well, Pharaoh's not producing much good fruit, is he? John the Baptist went a little bit further, and I had this read earlier in the service because it's such a powerful passage. From Matthew chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're going to John the Baptist before Jesus was baptized because they heard that there's this man of God, this prophet, in the Jordan doing this ministry. And he sees them coming. Here's the loving words of John the Baptist. He says, you brood of vipers. That would be snakes. Who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Now listen to what he says. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is what? It's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. My beloved, whatever your, whatever your sinner's prayer was, whatever, whenever you were baptized, maybe you were, maybe you were baptized multiple times, Maybe you've been in multiple churches. Maybe you've read multiple translations of the Bible. You've received communion. You've engaged in ministry. Maybe you've been a ministry leader. Maybe you've been a, an elder or a deacon or a pastor somewhere. None of that matters if you are not bearing fruit in Christ. Because if the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are saved, you will bear much fruit. And if you do not, it is an indication that you do not know the living God. Pharaoh was seeking relief all right, but he was not seeking God. He didn't want God. He wanted his circumstances to end. He didn't want to worship God. He didn't want the authority of God over him. A true salvific prayer does desire to be forgiven of our sins. It does desire not to be contemned into an eternity of hell. But infinitely more, I would argue, that a true sinner's prayer desires God Above all else, the true sinner's prayer is, God, save me from my sin that I might enter into Goshen and be with you. Forgive me of my sins that I might come into your presence and know you and be known by you. The person truly saved by grace has gotten a glimpse of Jesus Christ. And yes, they want to be forgiven their sins, and yes, they don't want to spend an eternity in hell, but they see Christ and they must have him They've seen his beauty and his majesty. They've seen the loveliness and the grace of his broken body and spilled blood upon the cross. And they say, I must have that man now and forever. All the material possessions in the world. If you're an Egyptian, it'd be the land and your animals, your crops and the fields. Today, it'd be your your home and your career and your bank accounts and your possessions. When you see Christ, they become rubbish to you, garbage to you. Because to have beheld the Son of God, to see the Lamb of God who was slain for you and takes away the sins of the world, it captivates hearts forever. To see Christ is to want no other if you've really seen Him. It means, my beloved, that when you pray like Pharaoh, You want above all else to have Jesus. Pharaoh had no desire for Jesus. I want to ask you rhetorically, in whatever, wherever you are in your journey of faith, regardless of your profession and your baptism and your life experience in the church, can you say that Christ is my life? I want him above all else. Is there something underneath that or something above that that is vying for your affections. It must be Jesus. He must be your all in all, because if he's not, then your prayer is no different than Pharaoh. And it may be far more complex. It may be theologically nuanced. You may know how to say it better than Pharaoh. You may may be able to convince people in the church that you really know God. But only God and you really know if your heart's been captivated. If you've engaged in a in a fool's prayer rather than a saving prayer. My beloved God was so gracious with us. And I'm gonna close. He knows the power of sin to deceive us. He knows that we are apt to be self deceived. And so he he gave us the church for many reasons, but one of which is to know that we know God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer went so far as to say, you cannot know you're a Christian until you're affirmed by other Christians that you are, in fact, a Christian. You can't know it. And so God gave us the church, the local church, many Goshams on earth. Not Gothams, Goshams on earth many Goshams that we might have local communities like Cambrian Park Baptist Church where we can come together and glorify God together and enjoy his dwelling place here where two or three or more are gathered. We fit that today. He's in our presence. But even more than that, my beloved, he brings us into a church community so we don't fool ourselves, so that we don't engage in a sinner's prayer like Pharaoh. We get baptized and yet never bear fruit. He brings us into a church, and every true church has this power, according to Christ in Matthew chapter 18, to say, yes, that's a Christian. No, that's not a Christian. Now in our, I know, in our radically autonomous culture, we say, you can't say that. What I believe is true, maybe. Sinners saved by grace collectively have been given the authority by God to affirm and disaffirm someone's Salvation in Jesus Christ. You say, well, where did I get that? Matthew chapter 18, speaking to the church, the power of the keys given to the body of Christ, a local body of believers to determine yes or no, affirmed or disaffirmed. Matthew 18, 18, truly I say to you, Jesus speaking to the church, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Those are sins being bound to or loosened in accordance with profession and life. So if you came here and you said, I want to get baptized, we wouldn't fill the baptismal pool and just dunk you. We'd spend some time dialoguing with you. We'd work through scripture with you. We'd make sure that we understood your testimony. By God's grace, we'd have a little bit of time to watch you and see whether or not there's any fruit being born in your life. If it was a false profession like Pharaoh's, we would say, you know what? We don't think it's the right time for you to be baptized. We don't think you really know the Lord yet. So churches guard their baptism, true churches. Churches engage in what are called membership covenants, saying this is how we're going to live together. And if we live like this together, then we can affirm one another's faith. And if you deviate from this and you say, I'm not going to live like this, then we become very concerned as a body as to whether or not it's a true profession or a Pharaoh-like profession. Two churches will regulate the communion service. We have people come to the table who have made a profession and have been baptized and are members of a local church and are walking the walk. And of course, Matthew 18, 18 speaks most closely to church discipline. So that once you come to the church and you get baptized and you join the membership and you engage in communion and we see willful, unrepentant, serious sin in your life, we will come to you first one and then two or more and then the entire church and say to you, we love you, do you see this? And you say, I see it and I do not care. We will then cast you out and we'll say this person does not know Christ because they continue in willful sin. The church, my beloved, has been given the authority by Jesus Christ to affirm and disaffirm our profession and that is glorious. Glorious. It's such a strange struggle to me today that the evangelical church in the West, we don't do church discipline because when we do, people leave. You know what happens when you leave the mini Goshen? You go out into the hail and you go out into the locusts and you're seeking the darkness and ultimately death. And so God gives the church to bring people back. So you say, don't, don't go that way. Stay in the affirmation of the gospel of grace. It is such a glorious means of grace given by God to us to stay in the flock. One day, the seventh angel will pour out the seventh bowl, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, will fall from heaven on sinful man. One day. One day, Revelation 9, 3, the fifth angel will blow his trumpet and locusts will come and devour the earth. I'll I'll close with this question. Will you be safe? Will you be protected? Will you know the shelter of Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, who gave his life so that you might be brought in to Goshen? Will you be? It's a yes or no, my beloved. It's not, "I, I, I don't know, I think so. That's not a good place to be. Christ offers you salvation by grace through faith in His blood that you might be brought in and have the security and the safety when the locusts come and the hail comes. I pray that the Holy Spirit enabled you to hear the proclamation of the good news this morning. I pray that you have heeded the warning that we are sinners through and through and need salvation in a Savior. I pray that you know that that Savior is Jesus Christ. There is no other name. I pray that you see that Christ, by going to the cross, He bore the weight of the sword of the cherubim to bring you back in into the shelter of Goshem, that you might enjoy God now and forever. I pray that at the end of your life, it's more than the sum total of your possessions. I pray that it's not the things that you've gathered, but it's Christ himself. And I pray that you have a local church that can affirm that. I pray for each of you that that is the case, that you can say, yes, I am a Christian, and this church affirms it. So if you had friends or family that said, oh, we don't believe it, you said, come to my church, they'll tell you, they see my life, I'm different, I'm changed, I'm not like Pharaoh, I just didn't pray the prayer and get baptized, my heart is different, I love Christ most, and they'll say, you're right, because they see it too. These plagues are for you, they're for us to know the living God. There's no one else like him on earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want ears to hear. We don't want the hard heart of Pharaoh that pays lip service to salvation and confession of sin but finds no real transformation of heart and mind. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us in this mini-Gosham, that Cambrian Park Baptist Church might be a safe haven for the saved and the unsaved, that we might collectively, as we gather, find affirmation of our faith that we are truly being sanctified each and every day, that we can testify to the world that our brothers and sisters really know and love the Lord Because we've seen the change. We pray, Lord, that Cambrian Park would become a safe haven for all the lost here in the Cambrian Park community. We are surrounded by those who do not know you. They have no shelter. They are standing outside. And when the hail comes and the locusts come, when the darkness comes and the death comes, they will have no hope if not for Christ. And so let us be like Moses, charging out into the midst of the hail, not concerned about his own well-being, that we might share the truth of Jesus Christ, that we might proclaim the gospel, that those who do not know you might hear, repent, and be saved too, that they might come into Gosham and know you. Father, I pray you would make us bold in our proclamation with our family, with our friends, with our children, and with our grandchildren. We ask, Lord, for the blessings that you provide for your church, for the strength and courage to continue in the faith, for an increased love for our Lord Jesus, and for lives that truly do testify to how good you are, for you are so good. I pray for these blessings upon my brothers and sisters here, friends and family that have gathered, that you might be glorified in us. In Christ's name, amen.